and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you can work your way back through the archives and find some of the other episodes and find those enjoyable as well. It's been a few years now we're doing this podcast, so I think there is a bit of an archive there for those of you who are interested. So um, I want to say a couple of quick things before we jump into yet another uh, important episode of the podcast. Uh, First and foremost, Counterpunch really deserves people's support. Uh, 25 years plus that Counterpunch has been out there putting forward some of the best analysis on the left on some of the crises of our time. I mean, if you go back to the first issues of Counterpunch and bring it all the way forward to today, you can see just the vast scope of what Counterpunch has been able to put forward in more than a quarter of a century. Uh, And that is doing that independently, independent of major corporate financing, independent of the major NGO industrial complex and all of the rest of it. And if you value stuff like that, as I do, please consider getting a Counterpunch subscription. That is the print magazine, which you can uh, continue supporting. You can keep Counterpunch printing on paper, which is sort of an anachronism and kind of awesome. And uh, just know that you're also supporting, I think, one of the most important independent media outlets out there. So uh, please do consider that. You can use PayPal to make a donation, whatever's most convenient for you. Uh, Housekeeping note number two, uh, just want to let people know that in the coming weeks, uh, I'm going to work on putting these episodes out as much as I possibly can, but uh, there may be some interruptions, and uh, without going too far into detail, I have another child due in a few weeks, and I don't know exactly how uh, the recording schedule is going to work out. Uh, Managing editor of Counterpunch, Joshua Frank, has already said that he might jump in as well to uh, help out with some of these episodes. Uh, We're still working out some of the details, but just know that uh, the show will continue. Uh, There may be some slight delays getting a few of these episodes out there as I try to figure out a way to record and find time to edit and all of this other stuff. So just bear with us in the coming coming weeks as uh, we try to work our way through that. Anyway, let me turn to my guest today. Very happy to have him aboard. He's a returning guest. I've talked to him a couple of times on this show over the years. Uh, He's one of the people that I really do go to and depend on for analysis of a number of issues, but in particular, British politics. And uh, for those people following British politics these days, it does seem... Boy, if you think U.S. politics seems nuts, uh, British politics is pretty out of control. And I think that uh, we're lucky to have someone here to help us try to get a handle on all of that. It is Dan Glazebrook. Dan is a political analyst. He's a friend of mine. He's somebody that I really respect. Uh, His website, danglazebrook.com. I really do recommend Dan's work. It is some of the best. He's a regular contributor to Counterpunch. You can find uh, a number of his pieces in some of the recent print uh, um, magazine articles that he's published with Counterpunch, and he has a new book coming entitled Supremacy Unraveling, Crumbling Western Dominance, and the Slide to Fascism out, I believe, in the coming months. Dan Glazebrook, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. So uh, I'm really happy to talk to you today uh, for a lot of reasons, but I think most importantly, so you can just help us to understand what in the hell is going on in Britain and in British politics. And so To start off that conversation, I think we should probably try to do some sort of a summation of how we've gotten to the point where we are as we're recording here on September 15th. So, Dan, let's start with the resignation of Theresa May, the former prime minister, and the ascendance of Boris Johnson, now the prime minister of the UK. What has happened since then? 
Okay, yes. Um, I'll actually uh, rewind a little bit further back than that to understand um, Theresa May's resignation, to understand obviously her battles with Parliament. So what was happening with Theresa May, famously the British Constitution is um, a bit of a mishmash. Uh, it's not a single document that you can just consult. Um, it is, uh, as one 19th century commentator put it, it is uh, largely based on a series of understandings which themselves are not really understood. So one of these understandings is what called the Prime Minister's royal prerogative powers, the things that she can do or he can do without consulting Parliament, inherited uh, way back when from the monarch. And included in these uh, powers is the power to negotiate treaties, and it was assumed also to therefore repeal treaties as well, um, according to the the, 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 this convention of the constitution, this could be done by the prime minister without consulting parliament. So after the EU withdrawal referendum in 2016, Theresa May's understanding was that she would be able to do two things. She'd be able to uh, withdraw from the EU and then negotiate a new arrangement with the EU, all without um, parliamentary's cons parliament's consent. Um, the two things that blocked her from doing this. One was the Supreme Court ruling that she did actually have to seek Parliament's consent to withdraw from the EU. Well, that was fine because Parliament overwhelmingly overwhelmingly voted to um, request a withdrawal from the EU. So that was fine. The other thing, though, uh, obviously, Theresa May famously in 2017 called a snap general election um, in order to increase her very slim majority in Parliament. And the, the result of that was that she actually lost her majority altogether. Um, and therefore, we now have a minority Conservative government backed up by the 10 MPs from the Democratic Unionist Party, um, a far-right party in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, so her, she was therefore unable to prevent Parliament from actually adding an amendment to her EU withdrawal bill, that said Parliament's consent would, by law, need to be sought, actually, for any new deal she arranged. So this was really, this really basically scuppered her whole um, plan, which was just to, to kind of negotiate a deal with the EU that would pander to the kind of pro-Brexiteer UKIP kind of vote, um, and she would just be able to get it all done and dusted without any need for parliamentary approval. Now, by law, she does any deal, new deal with the EU will in fact require parliamentary approval due to that law. So that was really the beginning of her of her troubles because she did negotiate a deal, um, was unable to get it through Parliament. The first time she tried to get it through Parliament, it was the biggest uh, defeat for a government for, I, I can't remember how long, but well over a century. Um, the second time it was defeated, the third time it was defeated. After her third defeat, um, she kind of reached out to the Labour Party to try and make some compromises uh, acceptable to them. And then, of course, her own right wing in the Conservative Party went crazy about that. And basically, knives were out and they decided to ditch her. Boris Johnson came in in July um, uh, with uh, the one by a, a landslide amongst um, Conservative Party members, about 160,000 Conservative Party members across the country voted for him um, rather than Jeremy Hunt, his nearest rival. Um, 
And his strategy from the get-go, even in, in the uh, leadership campaign, his strategy was to present himself as Mr. Brexit. He's the man who's going to deliver Brexit. Theresa May has failed. He's going to do it. And how's he going to do it? By sheer force of will, basically. This was his kind of shtick, that his pure, by his pure determination, which Theresa May lacked because she was a Remainer, he was a Lever from the get-go, uh, this is the argument, he will be able to force the EU to make a new deal uh, that will be acceptable to Parliament, and it's going to happen. And even if they don't negotiate a new deal, we're going to leave anyway without a deal, and you know all the naysayers are wrong to predict doom and gloom because you know Britain's this wonderful nation that can deal with anything that's thrown at it. So this was his sort of shtick. We're going to leave the new the new deadline that Theresa May had agreed to for Britain leaving the EU was October the 31st. He said, we're going to leave, uh, you know, come what may. We'll Hopefully we'll get a new deal, but if we don't, we'll, we'll, we'll leave anyway. And his argument is obviously you have to kind of, you know, Trump's sort of business logic, you have to be willing to walk away, blah, blah, blah. We need to be willing to show the EU that we're prepared to walk away without a deal um, and that will concentrate their minds to, to, to give one. Interestingly, what's been happening since then is you've had this sort of parallel, parallel contradictory narratives of Boris Johnson periodically saying, yeah, these negotiations are going really well. You know, the EU at the verge of crumbling and caving into all my demands and the EU saying, I don't know what he's talking about. We're not having any negotiations. Uh, so quite a battle of narratives there. Um, but it seemed to me what his strategy has been actually um, really is, I, I think he always knew and intended that Parliament would block a no-deal exit. Um, and that what he was actually trying to do was position himself to be the kind of valiant crusader for Brexit, whose will was being frustrated. He had the determination, he had the resolve, but it's constantly being frustrated by this elitist Parliament determined to block the will of the people. Um, and so a couple of weeks ago, um, he, uh, well, Parliament did uh, pass a bill, as was entirely predictable, uh, passed into law um, that would prevent um, Britain leaving without a deal. Well, no, that's not entirely true. What it strictly speaking said was that if he hadn't negotiated a new deal by October the 19th, then he, by law, would be obliged to seek a further extension to the Brexit deadline um, to January. Um, to allow further time to negotiate a better deal. So let me let me just jump yeah, in with a quick question to see if I can try to probe a little bit further. So if Boris Johnson understood that the strategy that he was pursuing was not going to be successful, does that mean that basically the strategy is to build toward a new election where he could de develop yeah. a larger majority and exactly. position himself as a crusader for democracy? Um, or yes. is there a parallel route that he thinks he's going to take? Because it's hard to see how that all happens by the end of October. Yeah, well, exactly. No, well, so what I, I, as I say, I think that this, he always knew he would be blocked from pursuing New Deal by Parliament, but that was part of the kind of game plan, you know, to, um, to, 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 to give himself some more anti-establishment, anti-elitist credibility. He needs to be, you know, showing that he's sort of fighting against the institutions, the remain institutions that are blocking the will of the people, right? So, um, now, there are, there are different views as to whether he was expecting 
his plans for an early election also to be blocked. So this is interesting. Um, so uh, Labour and Corbyn have been planning for, uh, have been calling for a general election um, for years now, really, to resolve the Brexit deadlock. So one uh, one school of thought says that Johnson's strategy was Parliament would uh, block a no deal, and then he would immediately call a general election, and Labour would kind of be obliged to uh, support that um, because he needs he needs parliamentary approval for a new election. Uh, in fact, he needs a two thirds majority uh, for a general election, so he needs the support of the opposition for that. And he was expecting them to be kind of to, he, he was laying a trap for them basically that they would be forced to support his call for a general election, but they didn't walk into it. They didn't go for it. I'm, I'm, to be honest, I think that was fairly predictable as well. I don't see why anyone would have thought that Labour would have walked into that kind of a, a, a trap, and predictably they didn't. Um, and again, I'm not sure this is so... Uh, I, I think this was probably what Johnson was was, was expecting and, and counting on. I think his plan now is to... Um, is to allow the 31st deadline to pass, Um no deal will be blocked um, by Parliament. He'll have been forced to seek an extension, but he can still go into the election on the basis of, you know, you saw me, I was determined, I had the resolve, Parliament blocked me, and go into an election on that basis. Now, that kind of election obviously has a number of possible outcomes. One is he gets a majority on the basis of this. He kind of managed to soak up a lot of uh, Brexit party votes um, by being seen as a you know more committed to Brexit than Theresa May was, uh, and he actually wins his majority. In that case, I think you see. I think the long term plan is. I, I think he's going to get Theresa May's deal passed, and that's his plan ultimately um, to to get some perhaps get the EU to agree to some slight tweaking of the wording. Um, that will, he will then obviously present as this great victory that EU have crumbled in the face of his resolve. They've uh, completely given him a radically new dispensation and it's a great victory. Of course, it will be nothing of the sort. It will be just a, a symbolic rewording um, uh, of the um, political agreement. Um, but, you know, symbolism is obviously important and he'll present it as a great victory and get, get basically the same deal that he'd helped to scupper three times through Parliament with the majority that he's expecting to win. Help me understand, just so I can be clear about how the political landscape shakes up now in Parliament, because hmm. Boris Johnson took this extraordinary step, and I suppose it's not entirely extraordinary, but in the context it was extraordinary the, to prorogue the Parliament. So I guess, number one, yeah. I would ask you to explain, uh, especially to our non-UK uh, listeners, what exactly that means in, in the context of British politics. But hmm. more importantly, then, help us to understand what the... Um, you know, quote unquote, purge of the Tories really was then, because as he took this extraordinary step, there was this major development within the right wing of uh, his own party. So help me to understand what proroguing the parliament was and what this purge of the Tories really meant. Mm, yeah, right. So proroguing parliament basically means suspending parliament, ending what's called the kind of current parliamentary session before beginning a new one. Um, and then there's a kind of little break between between the two. So it's kind of suspending Parliament for a time. Um, what is 
and, and that is pretty standard. And in fact, this parliamentary session has is, is has been unusually long. Normally they're about a year. This one's been about two years. Um, so his argument was, well, this is just this is a matter of course. This is normally what happens. Parliament's been going on for a long time. Um, it's normally prorogued anyway for the party conference season, uh, which is due to start soon. Um, it's normally prorogued for something like three weeks in the party conference season. Um, he prorogued it for five weeks, but he said, well, that's three weeks for party conference. That's normal. And then you prorogue it a little bit extra um, because he said we want to have a Queen's speech. When you have a new parliamentary session, uh, the Queen delivers a speech in Parliament, which is written by the Prime Minister, which outlines what her government is planning to do over the course of that session. Um, so he said, we want to get on, we're a new government, we've got new plans, we want to get these going, we want a new parliamentary session to announce our plan, a new Queen's speech to announce our plan for boosting the police force and all of these other things that we want to do. So he said the combination of these things, uh, partial suspension to allow for a Queen's speech, partial for the um, party conference session, Add them together, it's five weeks, it's nothing unusual, it's a matter of course, nothing to see here. That was his argument. Um, his critics uh, mainly suspected that the real reason he wanted to close down five week, uh, Parliament for five weeks in this crucial period of the run-up to the next Brexit deadline of October the 31st was so that he could um, do all of his Brexit. Personally, I've got a third interpretation. Um, I think he's kind of operating out of the sort of Steve Bannon playbook of what you what what you do is to boost your own uh kind of pop you know to mobilize people behind you in your strategy uh if you're a kind of far-right populist type of figure is you do something that's going to trigger sort of apoplectic rage from the liberals get them all up shouting and screaming kind of making fools of themselves i suppose in their eyes and then you goad them into defending unpopular positions. So it was interesting, shortly after he'd been discussing with uh, Bannon about a year or so ago, he published an article basically mocking um, uh, Muslim women wearing the burqa, calling, you know, using all kind of derogatory and mocking language to describe the burqa. And then, of course, that put liberals in a position of defending the burqa and then he builds a kind of support base on, you know, oh, look at these lib these sort of pro-Islamic extremist liberals. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's kind of goading yeah. liberals into, we into have, positions, right? Yeah, I think in the U.S. I think in the U.S. context, we could point to a hundred examples of that right. in the Trump era, yeah. where Democrats are coming out, you know, protesting in support of the, you know, the former head of the FBI, you know, protesting, right. you know, defend, you know, defend the intelligence community and all right. kinds of bullshit like this. Yeah, I mean, in, yeah, and in, in this in this context, it was perhaps um, even a bit more clever because uh, you know I'd, I'd say it's, you know it's correct to actually defend against this kind of mocking attack. You know, discriminated against minorities in this country is is the correct thing to do. Nevertheless, obviously, the the, the spectacle of liberals and especially the the so called liberal establishment defending a kind of. Uh, um, to a certain degree, despise minority boosts his 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 um, popularity, and I think it's the same thing here. Parliament is not a popular institution. The MPs are not popular, and and so you know he, he's closing down Parliament, and then the Liberals are all kind of saying, "Oh, this is a coup. This is outrageous," and you know ordinary people 
to, to a certain extent, you know, might rightly think, well, especially, so, so for example, the Liberal Democrats, they were even calling for a general strike against what they called this coup against Parliament. Um, and you kind of think, well, these, these Liberals, they're in the coalition government that imposed austerity, you know, that has been, that's been instrumental in hacking back public services, um, you know, to, to a degree unprecedented in the post-war era, uh, with the effect of, you know, misery on millions of people. Uh, a huge rise in homelessness and so on and so forth. They don't care about any of that. But when their own jobs, you know, their own careers are on the line and so on, and the, and their institution is is temporarily affected, then 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 they get into a fit of of rage. So, so I think my my interpretation, the prorogation of Parliament, wasn't particularly so much to avoid scrutiny, or it certainly wasn't what he was claiming. Um, uh, but it was actually, you know, a political tactic to a part of his sort of pre-election campaign to boost his popularity again feed into this whole narrative of i'm with the people parliament's blocking the will of the people look at them getting so upset about their own positions they don't care about you they only care about themselves and, and actually the prorogation was as much about feeding into that narrative as it was um avoiding scrutiny or, or, or anything else that's that's my personal uh, that makes uh, yeah you know that makes perfect sense to me and i would actually maybe throw in one other uh element to this and just want to get your comment on i think that that i think that your analysis is correct fundamentally that is to say that third option that steve bannon uh option mm -hmm. and i wonder the extent to which um Boris Johnson's actions are also dictated by what he sees to his right, namely the Brexit party, Nigel Farage, and a more extremist Brexit vision. And do you think that some of the tactics that uh, Johnson has employed have been to kind of placate those to his right that he's going to need to, uh, you know, demobilize or at least get, yeah. on, get onto his side? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, he's, it's a, he's got a double strategy towards these. Oh, the last European elections, the Brexit Party won. Um, the Conservatives did pretty badly, and so obviously, yeah, he needs he 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 needs a strategy that can convince people that the Brexit Party is redundant. He's making the Conservatives now the Brexit Party. He is Mr. Brexit, not Nigel Farage. He's the one who can deliver it. Um, so yes, he needs he needs to do these things to to kind of Hoover back those those votes. But it's a double strategy as well because you mentioned about the. Um, uh, chucking out of these 21 MPs um, for voting against him um, uh, over the prorogation um, and over the, sorry, no, over the uh, attempts to block no deal. Um, it was quite an unprecedented step to remove remove the whip, as it's called, uh, from these 21 Conservative MPs, many of them former ministers, cabinet ministers, and so on. And, you know, that was as that was as much, I think, a, a warning to his own right wing uh, and his own pro-Brexit lobby, as it was to the kind of Remainers who he actually chucked out. It was, it was, a, it was a show. It was showing them that he's prepared to do this, right, to people who blocked his strategy. Because, as I say, when the time for now in the run up to the election, he's posing as Mr. Brexit. He'll do whatever it takes. Blah blah blah. When it comes to it, he's got to get basically some retweaked version of Theresa May's deal through Parliament, right? Which is going to be, uh, which is going to deeply anger his hardline right-wing pro-Brexiteers and so on. So he, he, he's also sent a message to them, you know, that he's prepared to do this. He's prepared to kick them out of the party, if needs be, when the time comes. Because, 
you know, think about someone like um, someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg. I don't know if you know this top hat wearing Toff, um, who's been made leader of the House of Commons under Boris Johnson. Um, you know, where's where's he going to go if he's kicked out of the Conservatives? These 21 MPs, you know, they've been basically driven into the arms of the Liberal Democrats. Another one this morning announced he was joining the Liberal Democrats. But where are the right wing of the Tories going to go? They're not going to join the Liberal Democrats, are they? They're not going to join Labour. Um, they're going to join the Brexit Party. Well, the Bre- that's the end of their career. The Brexit Party, because of our electoral system, the Brexit Party doesn't win seats. It's very unlikely to win um, seats. So, you know, where are these people going to go if they're cut, kicked out of the Conservative Party? Johnson has shown them he's willing to do that. He's willing to basically destroy their careers. Um, and so he's got this double strategy. So he is he's showing to his own right wing that he's prepared to kick them out, just as he was prepared to kick out the Remainers. But at the same time, you're right, for now, in the pre-election phase, he's got a pose as the hardliner himself. So I, I really think this is this is this is his game. Really, he wants to. Um, he, he's got to be kind of hardline to hoover up those Brexit votes in the run up to the election, and then he's going to go kind of soft, as it were, soft Brexit. Theresa May's Theresa May's um, deal um, after the election. That's of course we don't know. He, he's claiming. So I think personally, I think that's kind of Plan A, right? Let the October thirty first deadline pass. Have an election have a, a kind of I'm I'm with the people against the elitist corrupt parliament, have an election on that basis, then pass Theresa May's deal. Of course, it may be um, that he's able or might attempt to get a, um, a deal through parliament before October the 31st, and then he could have an election on the basis of I'm the man who did deliver Brexit. Look, I just, I just did it, right? That, I think that would be tricky. Um, it'd rely on two things, neither of which are impossible. It would rely on, first of all, the EU agreeing to some tweaking of the wording, um, enough of a tweaking that he could credibly present it as, you know, an actual change. Mm, th- th- that's not impossible. Um, not impossible. And secondly, obviously, he'd have to get it through the current parliament, not a parliament post-election where he would hope to have a majority, but the current parliament, which has got a minority... Again, it's not impossible. Um, uh, he would he he would need to convince enough uh, Labour voters who've who've in the past blocked the deal to, to to change and vote for it, and perhaps more difficult convince his own right wing um, to vote for it. But for the reasons I've said, he may be able to um, convince his right wing with this sort of threat for their career. You know, he, someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg is, is riding high at the moment. He's been promoted by Boris Johnson. He can say to Rees-Mogg, listen, if you support this deal now, you'll have a good position for the next five years. We'll win the election and you have a good position in cabinet for five years. You will be able to present yourself forevermore as, you know, the, the man who helped push Brexit through parliament. You know, you, you, you go down in history and your career will be made. Or you continue to vote against the deal and I will, you'll be cast into the wilderness. You'll be, you'll be a, a nobody for, forever. So he does have tools to bring his own uh, right wing into line. With the Labour Party as well, you know, there may be enough of them to be convinced they would not perhaps relish the prospect of an election in which they are being painted as the obstacles to Brexit, to the will of the people and so on. So there may be enough of them 
able to be brought round to, to to support a deal before um, before an election. So I think that's the kind of plan B. I want to, um, uh, after the break, I want to get into some detail on Jeremy Corbyn on the position of labor and uh, what we see in the near term and the medium term from that side of the uh, debate. But before we do jump to break, my final question um, related to Johnson, and this may be a perception uh, question more than a political question, but if you go online, you know, on social media and try to just get a overview of what's going on in Britain, you know, via videos on Facebook and Twitter and so forth, you find that you you encounter a lot of videos where regular ordinary citizens in Britain are basically yelling at Boris Johnson on the street. I've seen like, uh-huh. must be must be at least five, six, seven of these type of videos. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, you're stupid. Oh, you go back to work and this and that, right? Uh-huh. And there's this uh-huh. sort of idea that, you know, this is a, a much more democratic than what we have in the United States where you could never get within a football field of Donald <laughs> Trump, you know, or anybody right. like that, right? And so, you get this elude that this 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 maybe false idea that Johnson is really just getting lambasted on the streets, that he's being humiliated endlessly. But I, I kind of get the feeling that that's not really the case. So tell me a little bit about how Johnson is navigating the waters of quote unquote ordinary people. And is there a political cost to him yet? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because uh, so he had these, I mean, he's everything he's proposed in Parliament has been defeated uh, since Parliament came back from the summer recess. Uh, you know, his call for a general election. This legislation that would block no deal were defeated. Everything's been defeated. So, you know, the, the papers the following day after those two defeats were full of our Johnson's humiliation, Brexit strategy and tatters and so on. But, you know, it was it was. It was in line with what I had suspected his game plan was. As I said, to you know, to he, he, I, 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 my view was that he was banking on being blocked um, from No Deal by Parliament. He was counting on that. So, um, I, and I think I, I think the uh, the idea is that the, re, the the you know the result will ultimately um, kind of people will forget about all of these things being supposedly humiliating if he gets Brexit done then which is bank on obviously doing i suspect then you know all of that will be kind of water under the bridge so this is a sort of just a kind of slight bit of pain he has to endure but you know people are very you know the right wing view of people anyway they're sort of very superficial easily led you know forget forget things very quickly i mean he's he's been he's kind of proved to a certain extent that he can get away with that i mean i don't know how many times he's you know, broken promises, gone back on his word and so on, famously, you know, trying to win the sort of environmental vote as mayor of London. He said he'd personally lie down in front of the bulldozers if they tried to expand Heathrow Airport. Then when he was in government, um, you know, he, did, he, he didn't even bother to vote against the expansion, let alone lie down in, any, in front of any bulldozers. And he seems to get away with this kind of stuff. I think in part because he's never presented himself as someone who believes in anything. He's always been pretty open that um, he doesn't really believe in anything and everything's a bit of a kind of private school joke, really. That And, and that's interestingly, be, but by being so brazenly open about that, it, it, people are not surprised and don't even particularly hold him to account when he goes back on his on his words. So, yeah, I, th- I think... Um, and I think sort of like... Same sort of like... Happening again. Sort of like trying to attack Donald Trump for being a liar. 
Right. It's, it's yeah, like exactly. and nobody, right. nobody who voted for him in 2016 would have ever argued he wasn't a liar. Right. Yeah. Exactly. While simultaneously, while simultaneously saying the man speaks the truth, isn't that interesting? That dichotomy, right? That I know yeah. he's a liar, but he's a truth-telling liar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, what people is is, is kind of code, isn't it? what they mean by speaking the truth is he he, he frequently articulates some of my prejudices. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. One hundred percent. Yep. <laughs> on, no, so which is not contradict, which is not contradict being a liar. The, the two are not necessarily incompatible. So yeah, and Boris Johnson definitely wants to emulate, you know, what what Trump's um, strategy has been in many ways. And I think it's you know it's, it's it's revealing about where we've got to politically that people have got sort of so sick of the kind of in this country people like Tony Blair, David Cameron, people who were like um, actors in terms of just the sort of you know so convincing that they well they saw themselves as so convincing that they believed in this court in, in this cause you know you see tony blair even today completely unrepentant about the iraq war i truly believed and i believe this is the right this was the right thing to do and 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 then you get it's paved the way for people like boris johnson and donald trump to be to say to people aren't you sick of these people who pretend to believe in something you know don't you want someone who doesn't pretend to believe in anything and that's really that's really where we're at. And the fact that these people can actually rise to power and, and gain popularity on that basis is is very frightening. But that's that's that that's where we're at right now. That's exactly that's exactly right. And it's a sad state of affairs. And let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, a lot more to discuss. Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. What's happening there? Where do we stand on the eve of potentially another election? And um, I also want to talk a bit about some of the economic and social ramifications of Brexit. What does this actually mean in real terms for regular people? What does this mean for migrant workers, for people from the global south and so forth? A whole lot more to discuss us with Dan Glazebrook. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio, chatting with Dan Glazebrook. DanGlazebrook.com is the website. Go there to follow all of Dan's writings. He's also regularly contributing to Counterpunch. So get that subscription to the print magazine, and you can see a lot more of Dan's work. So uh, anyway, Dan, we uh, left off talking a little bit about, uh, well, I was teasing, I guess, a little bit about Jeremy Corbyn and labor, because obviously people listening here are not right-wingers. People are interested in what uh, uh, horizons there might be for progressive politics in the UK. So what is the current situation and position of Jeremy Corbyn and Labour. I mean, obviously, at this point, uh, the question of leave versus remain might not even be the dominant question anymore. So what is the breakdown on the Labour side? Is it still about leave versus remain? Is it about how to leave, when to leave? What's the dynamic playing out there? Mm, well, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's in flux. And just to, to just, we have to sort of understand a bit the, um, the phenomenon of, of, of Corbyn, because it, it, we were talking about before the break, these politicians who, who, who brazenly basically don't, uh, openly don't really believe in anything. Boris Johnson, perfect example. You know, he clearly, um, and everyone knows it, he's a careerist, he doesn't believe anything. He, it was, he was open that before, it was exposed actually, that um, before the uh, referendum campaign got underway, when he was trying to make up his mind whether he would campaign for leave or remain, he wrote, you know, two two different articles, one passionately arguing for remain, one passionately arguing for leave. Um, you know, this this so this, it's clear everyone knows that his 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 decision to to, to support the leave campaign was a, it was a strategic calculation. It wasn't anything to do with something he believed in, right? So and everyone knows this. Jeremy Corbyn is is kind of the opposite to that in that he clearly is or appears to be and I believe is someone who does believe in things he does have long-held beliefs that he's fought for all of his political career the tragedy of Corbyn is that he is really uh, in many ways powerless to actually um, implement them even on his own party let alone as a you know potential prime minister um, and he's what he's really done is he's he's it seems to me he's made the kind of classic social democratic social imperialist bargain with his own the right wing of his own parliamentary party. So he he's he's always been you know anti austerity anti neoliberal and so on social democratic on the domestic level, uh, and at the same time he's known as you know sort of um, a leading figure in CND for for the campaign for nuclear disarmament um, against you know in favor of unilateral nuclear disarmament from Britain. He's been anti-war. He's voted one of the very very tiny tiny number of MPs who've consistently voted against Britain's aggressions abroad. Um, one of only I think thirteen MPs out of six hundred and fifty who voted against the um, NATO invasion of Libya, for example. Um, so and and yet the bargain he has made is with his own right wing is let's focus on campaigning against austerity and and I'll leave you alone. you can continue with your imperialist foreign policy basically and it's it's very sad to see the 2017 manifesto of labor was exactly that was a classic social imperialist manifesto it made no um it continued commitment to you know nato spending demands uh, continued the idea of britain would maintain trident so called independent nuclear deterrent it capitulated he capitulated on all of these 
foreign policy issues um and and uh, but campaign against austerity within Britain's own borders. So it was the classic sort of social imperialist kind of program. Can I just interject very quickly yeah. that we have an obvious parallel with Bernie Sanders in the United right. States with a very yeah. similar type of um, dynamic there. And whether one is slightly more sympathetic or less sympathetic than your interpretation or my interpretation of a Corbyn or a Sanders, I think objectively, the kind of bargain that you're talking about, even to some extent on a, on a conscious and unconscious level simultaneously, is very much a part of what we might call the left end of progressive politics in the global yes. north. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what Corbyn's done, which is, um, I think is quite disingenuous in, in, in a way, is that he he himself maintains these positions, right? So when, when, when it comes to parliament, a vote on Trident, he will personally vote against renewing the Trident nuclear system. Or when it comes to bombing Syria, he'll personally vote against bombing Syria. But he'll allow a so-called free vote, an unwhipped vote of his own MPs. So he knows they're going to vote for bombing Syria by a huge majority. He knows they're going to vote for renewing Trident. So the party's policy is unchanged. And yet it's this kind of, my hands are clean. My hands are still clean. I personally voted against it. But I didn't actually change my party's policy on on the position. So, and by doing that, he I think the idea is he's 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 able to through this sort of idea that he's his hands are personally still clean. He keeps on board the you know the the um, the anti-war movement, the CNDs, and so on and so forth. He keeps them on board, but also he doesn't alienate too much the right wing because they get to continue their wars and they get to continue their nuclear intimidation and so on, un unencumbered by his one-man personal protest against it. So, yeah. Um, so that's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting dynamic. Um, so is that dynamic that you're talking about wherein Corbyn as, you know, ostensibly the leader of the Labour Party, but really kind of the wounded leader of a fractured party, uh, it, does that carry over into other issues as well? Or is that really only on the issues of foreign policy? Because it does seem that, uh, at least with regard to Brexit, you also see some level of split among Labour, because at least from my outside perspective, it has always seemed to me that um, that that Corbyn has been kind of half-heartedly, he was half-heartedly remain, maybe potentially also actually secretly for leaving the mm -hmm. EU, and now is kind of stuck in this very precarious middle ground, sort of kind of defending both sides. Yeah, that's right. But it's interesting. He has this kind of free vote, you know, let my party do what it wants. It hasn't applied to Brexit. He's been perfectly content to, you know, issue three-line whips um, uh, to his MPs, demanding that they support, um, for example, the, the, the initial withdrawal bill requesting to leave the EU and so on. It's, it's always been three-line whips to support Brexit, but then it's a free vote, do what you want when it comes to, to Syria or Trident or so on. So, no, he, uh, he hasn't been, it's not that he's uh, kind of, impotent across the board. As I say, there's a certain bargain that he's made and certain, obviously, you know, you choose to, which battles to pick and he's decided to seed the field on imperialism, but he's not prepared or he's, he hasn't so far been prepared to seed the field to the Remainers in his party. He's, he's actually said, no, 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 listen, we, um, and, you know, strategically speaking, 
probably quite wisely, although I don't necessarily agree uh, with the position in terms of principle, he's, he said, no, we have to do everything we can to show that we're not going to be challenging the result of that referendum, right? Because then it'd be too easy for the Tories to sort of well, tear that's, apart and so on. That's where I was going to actually go, Dan. That's exactly the point I was going to make. Um, listeners who maybe have found this show in 2019, I would, I would, I would uh, recommend you go back to the end of 2018. I think it was the last episode of 2018. I had Yanis Varoufakis on this show, and uh, Yanis, of course, uh, one of the prominent progressive figures um, in the European continental politics, uh, found of the DM25 movement close with Jeremy Corbyn and we talked explicitly about this issue of Corbyn and how to approach this sort of leave remain question and he made exactly that point and he was explicitly saying that this was the conversations he had had with Corbyn about just how uh impossible it would be to navigate the political landscape as the person who went against the will of the people, which is exactly how it would look if they continued on this pro-Remain trajectory. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I think so, so Corbyn's position up until very recently had been fairly consistent. It always been presented in the media as a, as, as a fudge, which I suppose is, is fair in some, in some ways, but it was quite a, um, uh, uh, quite a precise fudge, if you like. It was his his position had been, we we have our certain red lines, had five red lines over what kind of Brexit we want to see. So it's number one point: we respect and we're going to honour the result of the referendum. Right? We're going to leave the EU. We respect that. Point number two: the we want a type of deal that does meets our five red lines, which included things like upholding workers' rights and environmental standards and ensuring that those would not fall behind. Uh, those of the EU protecting jobs, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, and then if there's, so obviously they would like to negotiate themselves a kind of deal that meets those red lines, and those would be the lines that they would use to test whether or not they supported any deal reached by the Conservative government. Um, then, so they would oppose a deal that didn't meet those red lines, they would support one if it did, and if they themselves got into government, and were not able to, this is my understanding of their position, were not able to um, negotiate a deal that met those red lines or Parliament didn't pass it or whatever, if they couldn't leave under the conditions that they'd set out, then and only then they would call for a second referendum, basically, uh, which, which, I, which presumably would be, well, you know, we couldn't get the deal we wanted. Do you want to leave without a deal? Or do you want to stay now and put get kind of no deal versus remain referendum? It wasn't entirely spelled out exactly what would be on the ballot paper of a second referendum, but their position was they would support a second random referendum if and only if they were unable to negotiate the type of Brexit they wanted. If they were able to negotiate that type of Brexit, then they would do it and they would implement it and so on. That was a fairly consistent um, position. What troubled me particularly is that maintaining freedom of movement not only was not one of their red lines, um, but actually they got kind of maneuvered on various occasions by journalists and so on to suggest that actually ending of freedom of movement would was a kind of unofficial sixth red line for them. Um, so that, that was very troubling to see that they'd been maneuvered into a kind of anti-immigrant um, position. Um, uh, so to the position, but the, posi but the position now 
of the Labour Party is 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 become very strange because there's been this huge campaign by um, the parliamentary Labour Party by the, the the right wing I would I would argue or the Remain wing we can say at least of the um, of the Labour Party to this idea of a people's vote we should have a second referendum like whatever like but even before Labour have tried to negotiate the deal or anything which that that's the next thing that needs to happen is a new referendum again I'm not clear what's supposed to be on the ballot of this new referendum. Um, if it's no deal versus remain, if it's Theresa May's deal versus remain, if it's some mythical Labour deal that hasn't happened yet versus remain, if it's three or four options, it's, it's unclear what's supposed to be on the ballot. I don't understand. If it's just an exact rerun of 2016, I'm not clear what's supposed to be on on the ballot of this second referendum. But Corbyn now seems to have been manoeuvred more into a sort of position where this seems to be kind of the policy now that they would put any deal even one that they negotiated that met all of their red lines, they would put that to a referendum. And a lot of the Labour Party are saying that they would campaign for Remain in such a referendum. So you have a kind of bizarre situation where the policy now seems to be that they would push for the type of Brexit they want, that met all their red lines, they would negotiate that deal, they would then put it to a referendum in a to the people and campaign against it. Right, so the referendum would be: Do you want the deal we've negotiated, or do you want to remain? And Labour will campaign for remain against the deal they've just negotiated. So it's a bizarre position, um, uh, but as you say, that reflects the reality of the deep split on this issue uh, of the Labour Party. So, yeah, the, yeah, it's very difficult, really, to see um, how this 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 new position that Corbyn seems to be manoeuvred into. Uh, is going to really alienate leave voting Labour voters and push them into the hands of someone like the Brexit Party. So I, I, I can't, to be honest, I feel like their current position is kind of the worst of all worlds. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's quite quite tragic to see. I want to switch. I want to switch gears in the final portion of our conversation to talk a little bit about what uh, the situation and what No Deal Brexit might actually mean for ordinary people. But um, before we do that, just one final question on on the political front. Um, you mentioned this already, or kind of alluded to it, and I, I think it's important to discuss. If we do find ourselves in a scenario where uh, there is another general election, and somehow by by some you know political miracle. Corbyn ends up as the prime minister in the UK, what would that actually look like? And, and, and the reason I'm asking is because many people on the left in the United States, as we go into our uh, election season here, uh, especially people who support some, uh, Bernie Sanders, have are all also beginning to ask themselves this question. What would actually happen if by some miracle Bernie Sanders became president of the United States? What would the institutional forces arrayed against him look like? What sort of uh, challenges would he face even from within Within his own party and within the establishment of his own party, and in many ways, you're what you're really uh, looking at is an existential uh, battle between what would then be a progressive president versus the reactionary wing of his own party, plus all of those on the other end of the aisle. So I'm I'm wondering in Britain, what would it look like if Corbyn was the prime minister? Would the right wing of the Labour Party seek to destroy him and replace him with a different prime minister? Would they use the anti-Semitism uh, controversy to undermine him and, and weaken him? What would it look like? I think perhaps you're being a bit over-optimistic about the existential battle. He's, As I say, he's already 
capitulated. Um, I think, and I think the right way, you know, if, I think it's an unlikely scenario, but if he was able to lead his party to a general election victory, um, then I think the right wing of his party would probably be happy enough with a neutered Corbyn, um, that, uh, which, like I've, I've argued, they've already, to, to a large extent, got. I think they'd be happy with that. I don't think they'd necessarily feel the need to uh, seek to, to 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 get rid of him because, as I say, he's and it's interesting that the, the left of the Labour Party, their model is the Clement Attlee government of of, of the immediate post-war period, nineteen forty-five to fifty-one. Jesus Christ! <laughs> right, quite exactly. So this was the government that uh, they will tell you, and correctly, you know, brought about mass expansion of council housing, created the NHS, created the foundation of the modern welfare state really you know nationalized a lot of industry and so on they did all that and that's true they did it on the backs of a, a, an increased um exploitation of the colonies um and a massive uh uh stepping up and ramping up of exploitation and the violence needed uh to impose that exploitation with wars in um malaya brutal um anti uh Brutal wars against the anti-colonial forces in Malaya, uh, in Kenya, in, um, uh, in the war in Korea that the Labour Party um, uh, uh, supported. Um, often downplayed, we hear a lot about Vietnam. Um, and the war in Korea was was actually killed more people than the war in Vietnam. Obviously, the, the statistics and estimates are, uh, are very vague, but it's con- con- it's thought that probably about 4 million people were killed in the Korean War. Um, and this was a war that that Labour government that the, the, the Corbynites seek to emulate helped to initiate and sent troops to fight in. Um, not to mention... Sort of, sort of like the hero-worshipping of Roosevelt in the United States. Right, exactly. Um, not to mention partition of India in 1947, in which a million people were killed. Not to mention um, the... Uh, uh, what was going on in in Palestine and the creation of Israel that all took place uh, under the um, British administered uh, uh, Palestine and so on. So, so if this this is who the the Corbynista left have as their role model, it doesn't bode well. And like I say, this this is really the kind of the kind of bargain, you know, sort of socialism at home based on colonial exploitation and plunder and murder abroad is the model that Corbyn's already effectively signed up to before there's any institutional pressures on him as a prime minister. So um, I, 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 uh, this is why I say I think perhaps it's a bit op- optimistic. I think in, in, in many ways, that kind of the battle's already been won against Corbyn uh, in, in, to the extent that he's, he's already made it clear he's not going to challenge um, a lot of the things that he had hitherto spent his political life campaigning against, war, Nuclear weapons, NATO, etc. So, um, so yeah, how would it look? I mean, obviously, there's 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 still nervousness um, about you know whether he would try to uh, replace um, candidates, pro-war candidates with anti-war candidates, and so on, and sort of shift the dynamic within the Labour Party. Um, I hope he does. I, I don't see any sign of it. He keeps promising that he won't do that. I see no signs to disbelieve him. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and and so, so really, so so all you're going to see is is some kind of attempt to limit austerity, and there may be obviously pushback from the 
you know, the, the, the wealthy against that. He's talked about raising taxes on the super rich and so on, perhaps making some moves against tax havens here and there. Um, so, yeah, you may see some kind of minor skirmishes on, on, on those issues, but the, the point I'm making is they're not even promising at this stage to do anything particularly radical. So I don't think there's necessarily going to be a huge uh, need for a sort of... I think the establishment kind of fear-mongering against Corbyn is, uh, you know, obviously they would rather that you had a someone like Johnson, a tried-and-tested, privately school-educated, you know, fully committed to... Um, to imperialism, capitalism, neoliberalism. Obviously, they'd rather have someone like that. Uh, but if, you know, someone comes along who's already been completely neutered, then it's, it's not the end of the world. I want to switch gears and, and ask you, uh, just in these final minutes that we have here, a little bit about what Brexit actually means for ordinary people, for working people, for immigrants and so forth. Because... I think that Brexit gets very abstract when you really when you when you talk about it endlessly it becomes a very politicized issue because it obviously is a political issue but um at a, at the street level it's a it's a do or die issue it's a life and death issue for a lot of people so my question is what does a no deal Brexit actually look like it's November 1st now it is the morning after the deadline has passed no deal was ever struck the UK is now out of the European Union or at least there is no official agreement in place. Uh, I know what some of the, um, you know, mainstream sort of uh, the Economist Financial Times people like to say about what they anticipate in that scenario. But uh, from a left perspective, how do you read a no deal possibility and what does it look like? Yeah, I mean, so two points. First of all, like I say, I think it's extremely unlikely that we'll have a no-deal Brexit. I think, as, as I said, Parliament has now legislated that Johnson, if he doesn't get a new deal, is obliged by law to request an extension. Um, I suspect that the EU will give that extension. France has been making noises about that they wouldn't um, agree to it, you know, willy-nilly, but all they're really saying is there has to be some reason given. And you could easily, and you know, the reason could be given. Well, we're going to have an election, and that's going to change the parliamentary arithmetic, and so on. And I think that would be enough to convince uh, France. Other people have speculated, oh, maybe because or any any of the twenty eight member states could veto a request for an extension to the deadline, including Britain. So some people have even speculated, or oh, Boris Johnson obliged by law to request an extension, but he could then actually veto his own request. Um, Again, like I say, I don't think Johnson wants a no-deal Brexit. I don't think he wants to have to carry the can for all the chaos that would ensue. Um, and other, you know, there's been... But I do, I'm sorry, I, I do want to, I, just because I know people... No, I will. Know. I'll come to that. We, I admit, oh, okay, okay. It is a possibility, right? It is a possibility um, that no deal will happen. That is still the default position, right? There hasn't been an extension granted. And any one of 28 member states could veto such a request. So it's, it's still possible, right? So let's think it through. I, um, your hypothesis, we leave without a deal. Well, the Yellowhammer document spelt it, spelt it out. This is the government's own uh, sort of scenario, gaming, if you like, for what would happen in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And you talk... It, 
I mean, but the basic result is going to be there's going to be a holdup of goods uh, uh, into and out of the country. There will be shortages, uh, and therefore there will be rises in price for food, shortages of, 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 of medicine and medication and so on. I mean, it will be chaos, right? Um, but what that means for people on the street, obviously, is as ever, if there's shortages, it's not a lottery, is it, whether you get something or not. If you've got the, the, the price will go up. And if you've got the money, you'll, you'll be fine. And if you don't, you won't. So poor people on necessary medication may well find that they can't get their prescriptions. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's, who's very what is diabetic, has five type of pills. And, you know, if, if he doesn't get these, he's in serious trouble. His health is at serious risk. Um, and so, yeah, I think you will get these kind of, uh, you will get these scenarios. But of, of, as ever, if, you, if, you're, if you're wealthy enough, you will be able to get the, the stuff because the trickle that's come, come through, you'll be able to afford it. Um, so, yeah, it will mean, it will mean um, increased food bills, uh, perhaps lack of medicine and so on for for the poorest in in society. That's that's exactly what it will mean. The Yellowhammer document also then predicts civil unrest in those circumstances. Um, uh, I would again, I think that's perhaps a bit optimistic. I don't know that people would necessarily react in a political way against the authorities that imposed this, or whether they would just in a more individualistic way you know, by any means necessary, try to sort themselves out. If they can't food, afford food, people might just, you know, steal food potentially rather than seeing their children starve, you know, or people might um, take out their frustration in increased domestic violence, as we have seen on the increase in this country in the last uh, year particularly. Um, these, yeah, I mean, this this, this is what will happen. The government's, the government's spelt it out. You know, you're going to have serious um, shortages of vital basic goods and obviously it'll be the poor who pay the price with all the frustration and, and, and calamity that, that that will cause to what extent to what extent does it negatively impact uh, the status of immigrants in the country yeah um, I, I mean I think in 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 this sense in in many ways the sort of the damage has already been done I mean you were saying we tend to view brexit politically rather than necessarily looking at the ins and outs of the sort of mechanics of what will happen. But I think with the referendum, it, it, it really, it, the, the referendum campaign, basically what it did, the main political effect it had was to end the taboo on immigrant baiting. Immigrant baiting became a respectable political choice uh, and, and even a necessity amongst parties um, if they wanted to maintain their popular and extend their popular appeal. And I say, as I say, this even infected um, the Labour Party under Corbyn, who've been kind of manoeuvred into a position of saying, yeah, yeah, of course, we'll end freedom of movement, get control of our borders and so on. We've seen already the so-called Windrush scandal. In fact, well, to be fair, that predated um, uh, the Brexit um, referendum. But the Windrush scandal where people have been here for decades and decades and decades, people who are already, some of them pensioners, being deported, who came here as children, being deported because they couldn't produce pay slips going back 50 years. Um, there's been a, a move to consider, there's a kind of now a sort of uh, guilty until proven innocent attitude 
towards immigrant families in in the UK, unfortunately, um, by law, I mean, which is that you have to prove that you have been resident for 50 years or however, however long you've been here. You have to prove that you have the right to be here if you're a dark-skinned immigrant. Um, and, and if you cannot prove it going back decades and decades, the, the authorities will now consider deporting. So, and, and Brexit has really fed in, the Brexit referendum already has really fed into this. Um, we've I've, a friend of mine um, who's dual heritage, he said it's the first time since the 80s, just in, in the past year, he's now, you know, people going past in the car and giving him racist abuse, calling him the N-word, telling him to go back home, etc. Never saw this um, since since the 80s, since the fascists were basically beaten in the streets, the National Front and someone beaten in the streets in the 80s. He said he'd never thought he would see the return of that kind of overt uh, street kind of racism, but it has returned. Um, so all of that is already with us, right? However Brexit um, pans out. And that is here to stay and, and to grow, I suspect. Um, so in terms of actually how Brexit is actually implemented, the legal details of any deal or no deal scenario, um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's clearly going to make things way worse. No deal, if there was a no deal Brexit, um, immediately the status of the 3 million EU uh, citizens resident in the UK is up in the air. It's been a fiasco. The government's kind of uh, planning to get people sort of registered, get their status settled and so on. has been a fiasco with, you know, just all kinds of misinformation going out from government departments. There's a campaign group called the 3 Million Campaigns for the Rights of Those Particular uh, EU Citizens, and, and it says the whole thing's just, just been a fiasco. Um, so... Yeah, and exactly what will happen, again, is, is, is not entirely clear, but it will open the door potentially to, um, yeah, a lot more, a huge increase in kind of wrongful deportations and, and, and so on and so forth. But like I say, I think, I think really the damage has, has, has already been done um, in, in terms of making, as I say, anti-immigrant, immigrant baiting really, a... Um, Ending the taboo on it, making it a, a, a sort of legitimate political activity and even uh, a, a necessary political activity to win votes. Um, yeah, I, th I think that the, the, the political effect is, um, is the worst aspect of all of this and is, is already there. That makes that makes perfect sense. Okay, final question, and I know you've kind of alluded to it already, but I think it would be it's good to maybe do a quick summation if we could. We are recording Dan on September fifteenth. We are exactly forty five days out from that October thirty one deadline for Brexit. Uh, we've talked through some of the scenarios, and I know uh, you know what's maybe not so likely, kind of likely. Give me your best guess here. I'm talking not what you want to see happen or anything. What do you really truly believe is going to happen over the next six weeks? Where are we going to be on November 1st? And what do people do then? I think we'll still be in the EU. I think a um, extension, I think the most likely thing, let's say 60% likely, is, an, is an, a, uh, an extension to the deadline has been arranged. An election has been called for some time, probably mid-November. Um, I think that's the most likely. Uh, I think the second most likely is that actually 
a deal has been passed by Parliament. Um, in that case, potentially Britain would be out of the EU by November the 1st. Um, uh, like I say, a deal that's basically uh, virtually exactly the same or is actually the same deal as Theresa May's deal, but with a slight rewording of the accompanying political declaration. I think that's far less uh, likely. I think the most likely, as I say, is an extension has been uh, agreed, a general election has been called, and Boris Johnson is kind of whipping everyone up into a, an anti-parliamentary sort of hysteria um, to, to, to position himself as the head of a sort of wave of anti-parliamentary Brexit frustrating um, uh, hysteria. And I think that's most likely where we'll be uh, after October the 31st. Very interesting. We're going to have to follow that closely, and hopefully we can have you back on to follow up on that and tell you how right you were or how yeah. wrong you were. Uh, so, Dan Glazebrook, thank you again for coming on the show. DanGlazebrook.com is the website. Dan is a regular contributor to Counterpunch as well, so you can follow his work here on Counterpunch. Uh, his new book short uh, should be coming out, I believe, in the coming months. Yes. Supremacy, Unraveling, Crumbling Western Dominance, and the Slide to Fascism. Dan Glazebrook thanks so much for coming on the show okay thank you so much listeners thank you as always and we will chat again real soon <laughs> <laughs>